Welcome to The Jest, the official podcast of Infinite Jest Theatre Company. I am your host, Colette Rutherford. Today's guest is actor and director Margaret Shute. You may have seen Margaret on stage locally at Little Fish Theatre Company, Long Beach Playhouse, or Sacred Fools, or you may have seen her directorial efforts at Torrance Theatre Company, Little Fish Theatre Company, or Shakespeare by the Sea. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you so much for having me. And you almost got my last name right, but don't feel bad because nobody in the darn world gets my last name right. It's shook. Like, I'm all shook up. Woo, woo, woo. Woo, woo, woo. I would have never gotten a GT into a K sound. And I'd always- No, it's the German. It is the German, but I've also would have sworn that I've heard people- I mean, not that I go around calling you by your last name, but I've heard people say it that way multiple Uh times because we know quite a few of the same people. I I really, well, because, you know, after a while, it's just a losing battle. It's a tsunami of the wrong name and it's just easier to stay quiet. Now, you know, it's okay. Now everybody knows. Well, and you know what? Yeah, because if they look at this, now they will know that GT is a K. Yeah. And I almost, I almost asked you. And then I was like, no, I've heard multiple people. Say yeah. it this way. And it's, I know it's right. <laughs> it's not even actually a K either. It's like a, but we just oh, yeah. made it a K because like, who wants that in their name? <laughs> I, I don't, I can imagine how much fun school would have been growing up if you just kept correcting your teachers to say, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as a bad kid, it was already a lot of fun being in school. So that would have just, just maximized the fun. <laughs> no, no. Okay, now that we've gotten that very important thing out of the way, and I do apologize yeah. for getting that wrong. I was so sure How I was right. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, Matt? No, I know. I didn't mean to. We usually start these podcasts by telling the audience how we met. And do you remember? Because I was thinking that it was one of Doug Mattingly and Brenda Locks, two of the Infinite Chess Company members, Christmas parties several <gasps> years ago. I, yes, when, I think we officially met. I think that's when we officially met. Like, I think we'd seen each other around Little Fish somehow, but yeah. I don't think we officially met until then. I think. I think, I think that's, that's exactly how. Yeah. yeah. I know the first time we actually worked together was when I did props for Imbridge at Little Fish, which yeah. you directed. Yeah. yeah. I did. Yeah, that's right. I would have not remembered that at all. I was like racking my brain when he was like, oh no, the first question, I don't know the answer. No, we did. (laughs) We met and we bonded over some movie, I think, that we both liked. Probably some like classic. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was. I'm pretty sure it was black and white. Yeah, at her party at one of their places. And I remember just thinking, wow, vegan food is good. I I remember having that thought. And that too. They do put on a good spread. (laughs) Whether you're vegan or not, everyone can enjoy it. Yeah. Woo! Yeah, that is not a party at my house, but I was glad to be there. So we recently uh, had a conversation discussing how many people don't see you as an actor, but you hold what I have learned is almost an MFA in acting from Michigan State University. And you have numerous acting credits on your resume. So how did you first get into acting? Uh, I got into acting because, well, I mean, I mean, whose story isn't the same? You see a play and it changes your life and you're like, that's the most magic thing I've ever seen. Mine happened to be when I was like three years old and it was like a 
trashy dinner theater that did a production of <laughs> Man of La Mancha where like the Ooh. wall opened up and became stairs. And I was like, this is the most magic thing that I've ever seen. Thank goodness I didn't actually understand what the songs were about, but yeah, that's a good thing in retrospect. Yeah. But so that's where I fell in love with theater. But I think I became an actor. I started acting in high school because I mean, I was a, I was a awkward, not particularly pretty fat girl and on the stage you get to be anybody else so it was a game of make-believe that you played with other people and so boy sign me up for that so that's probably how I became an actor I found that I was kind of good at it just by accident really like just by doing yeah that's how I think I became an actor and then I just sort of it was natural in my bones and like I could find a joke just I don't know I could I love storytelling and this was a way I could tell stories. And so I did it and I did it in every way, shape or form they would let me. And I had an advantage in that as a younger actor, when you're in your college programs and you're in your, your high school stuff, I, I looked older than everyone because of the weight and, um, you know, being taller and stuff like that. And so there were always roles for me. And we're never like the girl who kisses the boy or something like that. But somebody had to play the mom. And I was plenty fine playing the mom. And the truth is, is I learned that those roles tend to be a lot more interesting anyway. And that's the truth. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's how I became an actor. It started when I saw when I was three years old and saw Man of La Mancha. And that was it. I was done. So it. not a play for a three-year-old too is all no, I can think at all, at all. And and and, and I don't I don't even think I'm doing a great job explaining how monumental this moment was walking into the like Elizabeth whatever the Tustin Dinner Theater because I remember walking up the hallway and it had the lights on the floor and it was dark and and then it opens up to this giant space and I just that was it. I didn't know something could be so magic. That was it. That's all it took. And you got dinner. Woo! I mean, that was it. <laughs> that is always magical. Dinner theater or no. Yeah, that, that first yeah. <laughs> childhood experience that really hits you. Right. You have had a rough relationship with acting, though, including oh, yeah. dropping out of your MFA program. And that's part of what has led you to your directing journey. Oh, what exactly... Is it the difficulties that you have faced as an artist that have led you to make these choices? Sure. Well, that's a great question because it's it, because the answer isn't a straight line, really. Uh, in graduate school, which I did go for theater, I I went to graduate school and I I came in the same year as the new MFA teacher did, and to say that we didn't really like each other would be an understatement uh, of the year. We just didn't, and I got an. Um, I got a very, I got a definitely a reputation for being difficult to work with, which I didn't feel was completely earned because I just thought everyone should know their lines. Like I just thought like that was a basic tenant of acting. And I was in an acting class where that just was not happening. But there was this one teacher, her name was Nancy and she was just magnificent. She taught me more about acting in my time with her than anyone ever did. And when she was not asked back, for whatever reason, she wasn't asked back. And I think that there's a, there's an element of like, she was an open lesbian. And I think that, that was an issue when she wasn't asked back. There was just no reason to stay there. And further, there was no reason to stay there because I couldn't get cast. They wouldn't even let me play. I was telling you before, they wouldn't let me play Mrs. Van Dan because I was too fat to play Mrs. Van Dan be, because 
I guess she couldn't be a wealthy fat lady before she was locked away, I guess. Yeah. But that was, what was killer is that that was, it wasn't even like they felt bad about saying it. It was just so matter of fact that I couldn't do it. And by the way, like I've seen photos of me in grad school. I am not just like, I am not a gigantic person. And so it just, I never really fit in and it didn't matter how talented it was. It didn't matter that the the places that I, that the work that people were seeing was so well received. It didn't matter that. And so when Nancy left, there was no reason to say, so I came back to LA and I was like, I must be a terrible actor. I must be a terrible actor. I auditioned for a play as soon as I got out here. And it was one of those rare occurrences where I got the part and I did the play and people saw it and I got an agent from it and turned out I was a pretty decent actor after all. Yeah, that was exciting. And then I did that for a while, but then I was just so aware that I was big. So I decided I was going to lose weight so I could play those roles. But the problem is, is that I will never be able to be thin enough to be a lead. So then the agent didn't want me because I now wasn't anything. I was in this weird in-between space. So I was just doing theater and, and a play. One of my favorite plays of all time, Wit, was being done at the theater they were looking for a director and I was like, well, I can direct that play. I know that play. I know that play so well. And I know that poetry so well. So I basically walked up to the artistic director, all 24 years of me saying, I'm going to direct this play. And so I submitted <laughs> to direct it. I know, right? The confidence, the freaking confidence That's, you have it to have. 24 to walk in and say, I'm going to direct this Pulitzer Prize winning play all about metaphysical poetry and death. And death. And yeah. I'm at 24. <laughs> at 24. Terminal illness. So, like it embraces everything. But at 24, how, you know. How can, how can a 24-year-old not be the most perfect person to direct this? But to <laughs> this man's credit, I think that there was something about how passionate I was and how much I believed in it and how much I loved John Donne that he said, all right, let's, let's see what the 24-year-old can do. And it turns out I can tell a really great story using a script and music and actors. And I, and then I realized that that I thought was maybe the thing I was supposed to do. And so I sort of just, I would still do plays here and then, but I just sort of beelined to, to making the art that way. So that's how I became a director. Yeah. I mean, that's really how I became a director. That was it. Like, I don't know how else like I didn't have to take, I didn't take classes in it. I probably could still benefit from some, but I have the ability to listen to a story and understand what needs to happen to make all the beginning, middle and end parts make sense. And I can particularly do that well in the world of comedy because it, that's a language. That's like a music. And I speak that music. So is that a good answer? Is that a good answer, Colette? <laughs> I do love the idea of you being 24 years old with the uh, audacity to walk in completely inexperienced in directing and say, I want to direct wit and I'm going to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I had directed a couple like little things that you have to for school and stuff, but yeah. like, those are not different things. Like I directed like a 20 minute play that doesn't count. But not only that, you want to know what a cocky motherfucker I was? Like not only not only did I direct the play and do the sound design for it, but I had every fucking word of the play memorized. So on our very, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so on our very first like off book, I, I could just give the line without having to look at anything. It was horrible. Like 
what a shit I was. Yeah, your actors must have loved you. (laughs) I know, right? God, that's just such bullshit. But you know, I don't, I didn't know. I, whatever, 24. The things when you were young and unafraid. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly it. And now I can't even, now the idea of directing wit is horrifying to me because it's just so much more profound than I think I ever appreciated. And, and I really appreciated what it was to begin with. So you and I, are members of a group of theater artists who got together in 2020 to support each other and hold each other accountable in our efforts to be better, more inclusive artists and create more diverse and accessible art. And at our last meeting, we were all having a conversation about weight prejudice, which I think you've alluded to pretty solidly so far in this podcast. Um, (laughs) And the way that plays out in diversity and casting. And you shared, like, as I've already mentioned, how that was a part of your decision to kind of step away from acting and turn more towards directing. As someone who is overweight, what has been your experience as an actor? And what would you like to see change in terms of inclusion on this issue? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah. And uh, I I use the word fat because uh, it's, I think we have to make it like we have to take away a stigma from that word. It just has to be a state of being for me. So I'm trying to be part of the people who are like, yeah, you're tall, you're fat, you're short. So that each of those words sort of lives in the same place, which is hard. It does make people uncomfortable for sure when I say that, because like they want to be like, no, you're not, but then, but I am. So what do you do (laughs) in that? I think we have to like take away, a, there's no stigma with being tall. Like nobody says, oh, he's really tall. Nobody says that. Nobody whispers tall. So I'm trying to be part of that change. So that is okay. What is it like to be a fat actor? <laughs> and I would say that the fat bit led me away from it. From It was never a conscious decision to, to, to focus more on directing because of my weight. It was never, it was never conscious, but it was always there because I, I've walked into rooms and I know that I've been the best actor who walked into that room. And I, I know it in my gut. I know it. And so often you don't get a, you don't walk away with a part. And Betty Davis said something that always struck me. Betty Davis said, because Betty Davis was not the most beautiful woman in the world. And she said, when I auditioned for a play or a movie, I have to be 10 times better than everybody else who walks in that room. Cause not only do I have to be the best person, but I have to make every single person sitting in that room completely change what they thought of how that part was supposed to be when she would leave. And if she didn't get the part, she would always say, well, I guess I just wasn't 10 times better. And so that is, that was the place that I worked from in my head. Like if I didn't get a part, I would be like, I guess I just wasn't 10 times better which is a horrible thing. It's horrible. Yeah. It's, it just, you have to work so hard and it doesn't work out very often. And you still have to get everybody in that room to change their mind, unless the part is written for a fat person. So when I don't get a play to direct, it's never because my ass fits in a size 18 gene or 20. It's, it's, that's, that's not why I don't get, I don't get it because I'm the wrong person or I wasn't smart enough or I wasn't good enough. And so it feels like a much more even playing field. So why wouldn't you want to play in the even game? I guess. So that's sort of how I ended up there because I, I auditioned and auditioned and auditioned. And unless, yeah, so, so often, unless, unless the script specified a fat person, 
I could be the best person who walked into the audition and just never get any of the parts. And I, that wears on you after a while. It wears on you. It takes a lot of chutzpah to keep going. And, and I still do when I really love the part, but I found something else that I am equally, if not more passionate about. And, and so I do that. But one of the things that we were talking about in this, our collective that I was realizing is that because we've been doing zoom acting for a year, the only thing people see is my, like my boobs up, which you're welcome, America. <laughs> They're pretty well, pretty well put together there, but you only really see the top part of me. So there's no, we all kind of look the same size in, in a zoom box. And so all of a sudden what was happening is people were giving me things to read because they just need somebody to read. And then they heard me actually act like actually do a part that was heavy or do something that they didn't expect. And nine times out of 10, they all said, gosh, I didn't really know you could do that. I mean, of course you could, but I didn't really know you could do that. And one of the other side things that was happening is that I was falling in love with acting again because I was just telling a story. Like I, I was getting to do the thing that I loved that the thing that I fell in love with without having to worry about the size of my ass. And it was so freeing. And in our, as you mentioned in our last meeting, I was, I've really been thinking about that because one day, knock on wood, this is going to be done and we're going to be back in theaters and the freedom that I have now, it's not going to be there. It's not going to be there anymore. Nobody's just going to look at me from the shoulders up and be like, well, she's the best actress for this. And there was something, I, I was very much, you're right, last week morning, that loss. Because it will be. It will be. And I can't, we can't change it all in one night. And I appreciate that. And that's why we're in our collective trying to figure out how it is. But we also talked about how we have gone through talking about race, orientation, all these different things. And, and we didn't even get to size issues until a year in. True. So that's how low on the totem pole it is. We don't, it's, it's just not there. And it's absolutely a real thing. And by the way, like half of fucking America is overweight. So it's just so funny. It's, it's funny, but I, I've, I've enjoyed getting to act again. Well, more, and more I, I mean, I can say, so for the most part, I have known you as a director. I mean, not that I was surprised when you were like, oh, I have my MFA in acting and I, I like to act or this or whatever. I was like, oh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me because I know like for a lot of directors, that's our path. And you were lovely in the staged reading that we did online as part of our Alliance of Los Angeles Playwrights last Aww. fall. And it was it was really surprising to me because you were so delightful in it. But it, when you when we were talking about this at our last meeting and I started thinking out about that and your experience with that and everyone was so like, oh, my God, Margaret, I didn't know. <laughs> and like putting compliments on you, which were completely earned and how you did seem to, you know, you can tell when actors enjoy acting and you seemed yeah. to really very much enjoy that. And it was a romantic interest part. I know. Um, and it had like a Christmas movie bent and an old film bent. And like uh, for the people listening, I freaking love old movies. I mean, I already talked about Betty Davis for fuck's sake. And don't get me started on Catherine Hepburn. Like I love old movies and I was getting to play a romantic lead who is weird and loves old movies. Come on. Set at Christmas time. 
my head could have exploded. It was so perfect. Well, and at the time, I think I got the impression that you were kind of like very self-depreciating about it and and almost in an acknowledgement of the fact that you wouldn't think you would have been given that role if we had been doing it live in person on a stage rather than Zoom. I mean, I... I would say I would I would say I would give it a 50-50 because only because the character was written awkwardly and sometimes awkward is enough to be fat like when I see awkward as like a direction or a type then that not then I can almost consider auditioning for that because awkward me you know so maybe but maybe not yeah maybe not you may, you're absolutely right I I can't say 100% sure that I would walk in there and get that part just based on how I look yeah and 50-50. yet 50-50 and yet for those who did not see it, you're, you did a wonderful, nuanced job. You found lovely, tender moments in it. Like, there is absolutely no reason that you should not be cast as a romantic lead. Thank you. I would love to play more romantic leads. I really would. <laughs> well, and that was part of the conversation me. that we were having, though, is that, like, no one thinks that there should be a fat Romeo and a fat Juliet. Yeah. One or both, like, together. And... And why not? Yeah. Fat people fall in love. Fat people love. Fat they people do. like have they do. this life experience all the time, every day, all around the world. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. I'm doing it myself. Like they do it. We, we just do it. That's, we do. And yet it, it blows for some reason the producers and directors' minds that like, oh, well, nobody would want to watch that. Well, really? Because- <laughs> Why? Why? Why wouldn't they want to watch that? Yeah, it yeah. That's and true. Girl, as you free. said, I mean, with half of the American population being overweight. Yeah. You know, it's it's going to be difficult, but I think that the only way to change people's minds in what they expect is to continue to cast overweight people in any type of role the same way that you would differently abled actor or yes. uh, a BIPOC actor or yeah. any of these other categories that we're trying to find ways, well, to demand and hold responsible and accountable more diversity yes. and inclusion and accessibility in the arts. Yes, for sure. And and to give credit where credit is due, like we are taking steps in that direction. Like TV does not look like what it did in 1980. However, having said that, it's still ridiculous. It's still just, it's, it's, it's just, it's disgusting and we need to move faster, but at oh, least yeah. it is going in the right direction. Well, like, I mean, you still see the trope where in the sitcom, the husband can be bald and fat, but his wife looks like a model. Oh yeah. 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 Um, because the um, woman, one of my favorite movies yeah. going back to old movies is Marty. Marty is just such a great movie with Ernest Borgnine. And it's about on a, it's about two average people falling in love. Right. And even in that story, the woman is more attracted to him. They remade it with only the lonely starring John Candy as the Ernest Borgnine kind of character. And the woman is Ali Sheedy. So again, there's this huge disconnect between the two. Now, I've always thought John Candy's a bit of a cutie patootie, but like there's a disconnect about how how average women are allowed to be. And we don't we don't get the, we don't get we don't get to be men in that case. No. We don't. And that also leads into the ageism 
problem that women face too. Yeah. Oh, and that's another reason that in the acting I do, I'm glad that I've always been a character actor because women that I came up with, if they haven't made it by now, like they're, they're trying to navigate a new world. They're not ingenues anymore. So everything they trained to be, they aren't allowed to be that anymore. And so that the transition is of course to the lead actress, but then you've got to come up against all these character actresses who've had 20, 30 years to, to learn how to play somebody interesting. <laughs> so oh, it's, always, yeah. it's often not fair. It's often no. not fair. I've watched some of my friends who are ingenues who then tried to transition beautifully to being leading ladies, but they are now auditioning with women who've spent their entire life being a leading a lady. No, well, and you could get into some of the problems in our training in this country, in this society is that you already get typecast and you're 20 years old and you're either, you're the one person in the group that's the character actor or you're the six young women that are vying for the ingenue roles and you're in your scene study class. And the only thing they want to assign you is the ingenue or the victim. And anytime you try to break outside of that, even though they're telling you like, you're in scene study, this is your time to grow and stretch as an actor. And anytime you demand more, they tell you no, because you would never be cast as that, which was my experience. But I dug my heels in and demanded some roles and some (laughs) scenes and and monologues that were more character uh driven because i did not identify as the ingenue and it was not challenging in the way i wanted to be challenged and i was there to learn and to become a better actor i did a better job of that once i graduated and got out of that system but that's that's truly the way the system is and oh at 20 years old, you're not prepared to stand up and fight for yourself a lot of times. You you just want to be cast and get to do a play and have fun. And sometimes you might think that that's enough, that that is going to help make you a better actor. But it was just my preference yeah. and my thought and my experience that that was not enough. And I don't, I don't believe that it is for anyone else, honestly. I mean, they might disagree with me, but I think that young women and men in theater programs – need to not be typecast and to be able to pursue the roles that they want and to really truly become better actors so that they have more opportunity as they age and they get older. And because that's another conversation we've had about aging out of those ingenue roles in our, in our group and what that does to you as a woman. Yeah. And, And how hard that is. And also too, Nobody was made a worse actor by more experience. Nobody, nobody who had an experience where they got to play outside of their type was lesser as a result of it. And and I'm with you. I watch these kids come up and instead of training them to have a broad perspective, to be able to create a character, we teach them how to live in this box and create a character only in that box. And then all of a sudden, what if you want to make, what if you want to make a choice outside that box? What do you do if you've never lived in it? Like, what do you do if you've never lived in it? Right. And it's true. Like if you go to, if you go to Hollywood, especially like you could be, and you most likely will be typecast in a lot of ways, but if you've had the training to tell you how to approach a lot of different roles, then maybe you could walk into a room like Betty Davis and change someone's mind. Yeah. And maybe you could just make interesting choices because like you could just make an interesting choice that 47 other people didn't make. 
I we do a disservice, but what's new, Hollywood? I mean, and the same thing happened to me. Remember, agent, and then I lost weight because I decided I was going to be lead, but then I was somewhere in the middle, and so I couldn't be either. Exactly. So even then, I was like sort of thrown out because I wasn't the right type to be the fat friend. <laughs> no. Oh, it's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. And then we do this to young 19 year old impressionable girls. And we wonder why they're, they don't know who they are, or what they want to be when they grow up. For God's sakes. <laughs> this is why I drink Colette. <laughs> well, this isn't the only reason, but we can put some of the blame. No. here. I know that you identify as a member of the LGBTQ community. I may- do. I identify as a Q. And may I ask why? Why do I identify as a Q? Yeah, as opposed to lesbian or gay. Uh, uh, I was going to make a Q joke for Star Trek because I'm a big old Star Trek nerd. I was like, well, obviously because of Q. But no, (laughs) that's a very good question because, good question. I identify as queer in that. And I've actually had lesbians ask me why I choose to use the word queer. And the answer is uh, because I'm not a lesbian. I am a lesbian, but I'm not. In that all... My interest in romantic relationships, and particularly now, is very much only really geared toward women. But when we talk about just attraction, I can't deny that there is an attraction that I have had and can have to men. I'm just not interested in being in a relationship with them. And and trust me, it would be a lot easier sometimes to just say I was a lesbian because there is still a lot of biphobia and queerphobia in the lesbian community. So it would be easier to do that. But the problem with that is that I think we're so eager. It's funny. We keep talking about boxes and boxes we can put people in. We're so eager to put people into a box. And the one thing I'm pretty sure of now is that the boxes don't work. They just don't work in, in anything. And so by, by identifying as Q and, and correcting people to say, no, I'm queer, I'm queer. My hope is that it becomes easier for everyone coming up to, to not feel like they have to be in this box, like that they have to be in a straight box. They have to be in a lesbian box or a gay box or a trans box. Like you don't have to be in a box if you don't want to be in a box. And so that that allows, I think, sexuality to be a lot more fluid and identity to be a lot more fluid, which makes a lot more sense to me. So that's why I use the Q, even though it would be easier. It would be easier to just pick one of the letters that everyone understood but but that's not true that's not true of my identity and I think I think you're right I think that the hesitancy with queer comes I think from two places from what I have been told by people who identify as queer it comes from as you said a lack of understanding what that term means Mm -hmm. and it comes the hesitancy also comes from the fact that that was slang and derogatory for so And kind of like you and kind of like you said in being referred to as fat versus overweight, like reclaim reclaiming it, normalizing it, using it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just it's not and the other word is, and this is probably not fair to people, because for a while I think I for a while I used bisexual, but it feels like with that word, people assume that that means it's like a 50-50 split. Whether they mean to assume that or not, I think that that's the standard going rate for that, that it's some sort of like a 50-50. And that is absolutely not my attraction <laughs> identity at all. Like, you it's just not. flip a coin every time a man or a woman and walks in. Like, oh, what am I going to say? No, it's <laughs> not. And, and that's not true because I know people, I have friends who identify as bisexual and they're like, no, I'm mostly a bisexual lesbian or mostly a bisexual straight. Like, they're just, they... But even then, look at they're in a box and they're still trying to, to 
to, to fix it, to make it work. And so that's why I just go queer. There you go. But I've had lesbians ask me to explain that too. So it's, I don't know if I'm making it better or worse, but it's where I feel very comfortable. Do you feel that being queer has impacted your opportunities in casting? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so for me because the type of roles that I'm playing tend to just be large comedy parts and very rarely am I playing romantic leads. So, so I don't think that somebody has been like, Oh, she's, she's gay or she's, we can't have her play that role. I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to get to play the romantic lead for other reasons. (laughs) So, so for me personally, I don't know that I can say that it has affected, has affected what I've been cast in or, or not cast in. I know that that is not the truth, the same story for everybody. I know no, that's absolutely not the same story yeah. for everybody. Which so, is heartbreaking because an actor should be able to act. Like I've, I've won awards being a straight lady before. <laughs> like, <laughs> As I'm, I'm sure done. many of your fellow <laughs> queer, uh, lesbian, bi, <laughs> gay, homosexual fellow actors have. Yeah, yeah of course. Because you just it's so simple. You just play the character. You you, you play the character. You, you fall in love with whoever it is. And that's one of the things that it, what's interesting, especially when I, when people talk about why didn't they cast a queer actor in this role that was playing, that's playing a queer person. I actually get a little upset about that because I, I think, I think when it comes to things like that, actors should be able to act a part. Actors should be able to, you Kate Blanchett should be able to fall in love with what's her name and Carol because she's a good actor. And my big concern is that if we start saying, well, only queer people can play those roles, then they're going to be like, well, you're not straight. So you can't do that. And as human beings, we should all be able to represent the whole of the human experience if you are a good actor. So I'm sort of interesting there. Cause I have some friends in, who are like, how dare they not cast a queer actor in that role? And in some cases, absolutely. In some cases, the experience is so unique that it, it needs to be, but not. But most of the time, that's not the case. And how dare you tell me I can't play a straight married lady with seven kids living in a bunker? Like, you can't. I can do that. <laughs> of course I can do that. <laughs> so what might you suggest that theater artists to do in general in terms of creating more opportunities, diversity, and inclusion for LGBTQ plus artists? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> well, let me just solve this problem for the society that we live in. Um, yeah, I'm asking some really broad strokes here and for you to just yeah. um, jump right you know in and fix all the theater problems. It w- I think that we need to start by, by having even just more LGBTQ roles on stage. They're so the very stories. Huge, so. Yeah. Yeah, the stories are a bit of the problem. Like right before COVID was supposed to, well, right before COVID stopped everything, I was getting ready to audition a uh, Stop Kiss, which is a play that features two two women who realize they they're falling in love with each other. We were just about to audition the play, and I was excited to do it because it was going to be the very first queer centered show that Little Fish was doing, and bravo to them for for doing it. What also makes me sad about it is that these stories are like few and far between. They're still so few and far between, which doesn't make any sense. So we need some, we need some new plays. We need some new material. And I think that if we can get more material, that's probably the best place to start because a play always starts with the words. 
So even even when I participate in play readings or, or when I participate in festivals, like we're going through 50 or 60 scripts, it's just, there aren't a lot of gay people in them. And I, and I happen to know that there are quite a few gay people in the world. Well, so, and, I mean, we've, we've talked about this. I love Stop Kiss. I was in Stop Kiss like nonstop for well, what felt like an eternity at the time. It was like two years of my life. I kept resurrecting this, this play over and over again. And I love that play. And I do think it's a fantastic love story. Yeah. And the thing is, is it's almost 30 years old because it was written yeah. in the mid-90s. And there have been other lesbian queer love stories that have been written and produced since then. Yep. And this is perhaps the most well-known, one of the most produced of them, and it still doesn't get done all that often. No, it doesn't. And it's got the whole problematic, like, violence issue, which I think you'll see a lot. That's the other thing that happens a lot with queer theater, queer, any storytelling. It's almost a joke at this point that, like, I think that's why people loved Schitt's Creek. There were queer people on it who were just living their life. That was it. There was no victimology. There was no horrible thing that happened to them. And it's, that's a lot, I think, that we're hearing in the diversity inclusion conversations from a lot of different types of artists. Yes. Is that stop just telling the stories of victimhood. Yes. That would be nice. And then it... But then, at the, but then you get so it's like I guess I'd rather have something than nothing. So if, like, I guess I, I'm glad that these plays. I, I'm glad. First of all, I think Stop Kiss is a beautiful falling in love story. When you accidentally fall in love with somebody you never expected you would. Exactly. Yeah. I think they do. I think they do such a great job navigating that. That the the, the violence is almost sort of a letdown in, in this. But it was so of the time in the '90s. The problem is, is that. It still seems to be being done, but it's not up. I mean, that's not true. I have a friend who was beat up on a street corner. Like it's, I wish that we could move past it. I'm glad that they're there. I'll take any story where there's queer representation, honestly, if it's told well and not insultingly, but it's just, we need to advance our stories. (laughs) We need to advance our storytelling. And I think that that means we need, we also need a lot of queer writers to step up too. True. Yeah, very true, which gets into mm-hmm. a whole thing with supporting diverse playwrights and different stories yeah. and different oh, voices and bringing up oh, those artists right? as well. Yeah, it never, it never ends. It the never work. Ends. And it requires all of us to jump off the building together, right? The playwright, for so long, these, these diverse playwrights have been writing and getting just shot down and shot down. And I really do believe in the last two years or so, theater artists as a whole are starting to pay attention and finally starting white theater artists are finally starting to own what we have done to cause this problem and what we need to do to fix it because it is our problem to fix. But what that means is we have to ask our fellow artists who have been just sort of trashed on to trust us and jump again. And dude, that's gotta be fucking hard as fuck. Of course it is. We're, so we're looking at overhauling this Victorian white patriarchal colonial capitalistic structure that's been around yes. for 200 plus years. That's going to take some doing and some effort. You literally picked all the right words for that. Go Colette. That was good. Exactly. It's going to take some effort. 
and it's going to be a lot of work. And, but we have to just, it's, I don't know. I, I, we just got to keep going. We just keep going and own the shit that we made because we made it. White people made it like, let's fix it. But it will require trust from our fellow artists and hopefully we can earn it. I'm yes. now going to ask you some okay. lighter questions. That we ask okay. all of our actory artists. Okay. Do you have a dream role that you have not played yet? Or three? Okay. Ah, uh, gosh, yes. Boy, let me tell you about that, huh? <laughs> so, so, are all th- so, are, so are all things equal? Like, it, in theory, can I not have aged out of it yet? Like, is it just like how... Like it's I, a my, dream. My, Okay, then okay, then I would love to play Josie and Moon for the Misbegotten. I would love to play Josie and Moon for the Misbegotten. Big time. I would love to play that. Look at I only picked one. You did. And I'm gonna go on before you pick another. Yeah, because there's you better. Because they're like they're literally like a bunch of them they're like, Why didn't you say me? Why didn't you say me? Do you have a dream play that you'd like to direct? Ooh, gosh, that's a tough one. Boy, that's a tough one. So, so we're on a podcast, so people can't see that I'm literally like sort of shaking a little bit and really pondering this question. <laughs> Very squirmy um, right now. Like I've t- put the spotlight yeah. on you. Yeah, you really did. It's so hard. It's I. What I'll say about this is the answer right now is no, and this has something to do with I recently decided, probably in the last two years, that I was never, ever, ever going to direct a play with a male lead again not that there can't be male leads in it but i i am i've decided from from now on i'm not doing i'm i'm just not i'm doing female-centered theater like i'm gonna do plays that feature stories that are not about white men and unfortunately when i think about all the great plays that i love like and of course you can change it like i could i could cast hamlet with a woman no fucking problem i could do those kind of things but a lot of the plays that i gravitate towards like i really like miller and I really love Eugene O'Neill. Those are sort of very male centric. And so, whereas before I might say, oh, well, gosh, would have to be something by O'Neill I'd want to direct, just really guttural. But now, I've, since I've made that rule, which watch, watch now, I'm going to end up directing something by O'Neill after I've said this whole thing. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to have you on I, tape too. <laughs> I know, right? That'll be great. But I, so I'm relearning a new library. And I think that's part of the role that I, that's part of the job that I need to do too, as, as a director. The answer is at this moment, no, there isn't one, but there will be, there will be, there will be soon. So there you go. How's that? That's good. Also Henry six, part three. Oh, geez. I wasn't fast enough. <laughs> I know. Right. Sorry. I just, I fucking love Henry six, part three. I think and, that's just, and you just named a play that has a male lead. I know. Well, but it also has like, no, but it doesn't. Not really. Really. I think that plays about Margaret. In these podcasts, I always like to touch on some of the fun skills, talent, or experiences that I note on artists' resumes. And that being said, I could Uh not choose on yours because you have opera training. You can juggle. You speak Italian, which I did know you speak Italian. I don't remember why or how I know that, but I did know that. And you are a member of the band Hotel Prati. Oh, yeah. And I find things interesting. So tell us a little bit about each of those things. 
Sure. So the opera training is really unfortunate because I'm not a great singer, but (laughs) it's true. It's true that I had to do it because so as part of my studies, my theater studies, you were required to take a music. You were required to do singing which you can't get away from it, even if you're like, but I'm never going to be a musical. So this is not I don't, something I have to do. And they're like, no, you do. Okay. So I sign up and I wait until the very, very end to sign up. And they have very specific teachers designed only for the people who are just like me. We're never going to be singers, and but you have to take class. Well, unfortunately for me, <laughs> the... Unfortunately for me, something happened the year and their lead, like this virtuoso opera singer who was on staff, didn't have enough classes. There weren't enough people to be in her class for her to keep her like all of her stuff. And so their solution was to put me in a one-on-one class with this like well-to-do opera singer teacher. (laughs) She did. It wasn't like once once we had the conversation about how I ended up there. It's not like she's like, okay, well, let's teach her some like song time. No, 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 no. We're I was learning German leader songs, like, and and then also having to learn how to write them out, like, so that use that alphabet that singers do. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. But now I can be like, you know, I can do all that shit now. Oh, it was horrible. Oh, it was so bad. <laughs> So technically that's true and it's useful and I do love the opera. And I, so in that respect, I guess I'm glad that it happened, but Oh, stressful. I learned to juggle for a play. I auditioned for a play in high school. It said, can you juggle? And I said, yes. So I learned. (laughs) That's how I learned to juggle. Well, what's the, what's the most interesting object you juggle? Do you ever like, pick up your cat and throw them around with a melon and a flamethrower or. I, mean, I, I save that for Tuesdays mostly, but I can judge. I can, I, I can juggle what you call them. You can't bowling see pins? me on this podcast. No, yeah, no one I can do bowling pins. Yep. I can do bowling pins. I don't do them often because you miss one and it really hurts, but some, you know, it's your standard tennis balls. I can do like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm an okay juggler, not great juggler, but if, if I audition for a part and it says, can you juggle the answer is very confidently. Yes. I was really hoping um, for flaming swords. Oh, you know, who isn't right. That's the, that's the dream. baby crocodiles, <laughs> like just something a little more dangerous. Well, if I ever move to Australia, I tell you what, I'll start, get some baby crocodiles and just raise them till I can't juggle them anymore. Then let them go free. I, I speak Italian cause I lived in Italy for a year. So that's how come I speak Italian. And I was in, when I was in Italy, I started playing my guitar on street corners to make money. And other people in my program started playing with us, with me. And then we formed this band and we played all the way through college together. When we all got back, we still played in college. We're still in touch. We called ourselves the Hotel Prati because Hotel Prati was the worst hotel I've ever stayed at in Italy. It was just <laughs> Shout out to Hotel Prati. (laughs) There you go. I won't say which city it's in because it's a city where people might kill you if you talk shit about them, which is horrible. And And Prati means, you know, we don't have the internet, so so people can't find that hotel. I know, right? No, no, nobody will look. Nobody will look. I'm sure there's lots of hotel meadows in the thing. So we just called ourselves Hotel Prati and that name stuck around and we played through college and... And I guess they're trying very, very hard to get me to play at our, like... 
25th college reunion to, to bring the band back. So. And you, you don't know. want to do it. You seem to. No, I'll totally do it. Oh, okay. No, no, I'll totally do it. I just. I it doesn't have the same the- allure if you're not in, in danger in an Italian slum. <laughs> I mean, sure. But I think more the issue is that it's like, I'd have to learn a lot of songs that like, and I haven't played with these women for like a hundred years. And I think it would be great fun. And I love those chicks. So they're so hardcore. They're so awesome. They're like the coolest, but gosh, I just don't, I can't even imagine trying to learn all those songs that you thought were so cool 20 years ago. It was a lot of Indigo Girls. What projects do you have coming up? <gasps> yes. Oh, you know what else is my interesting skill? I can do a really great Catherine Hepburn impression. Like really good. I do good old Catherine Hepburn, like nobody's business. I just wanted to throw that out there since we're talking about special skills. Thank you. What project <laughs> am I working on? <laughs> yes. What projects do you have upcoming? I, 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 speaking of that, so I am actually going to be on stage. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so Brandon Locke, I, she's a company member with you guys. She is directing a play at Little Fish. She's directing Pygmalion, Shaw's Pygmalion. And Brandt has this very interesting idea about really focusing on the, the classism of it by making the leads women. So Henry Higgins, who we know as like from My Fair Lady, the Rex Harrison kind of character that we know, is actually going to be Henrietta Higgins. And I will be playing that part. So I'm I'm Henny Higgins in Pygmalion, and I'm scared out of my fucking mind. <laughs> I was originally just doing a favor for Branda. She had to cut a lot of Shaw because Shaw talks a lot even more than me. And so she was cutting it and she said, hey, could you read this part so we can hear it out loud? And I was happy to do it. And it's just such a great fucking part. It's such a good part. And so she asked if I would consider auditioning for it. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> and, and I just couldn't for so many reasons. One, because I hate my own fat phobia here because this is something I have to own. I didn't want to be on film fat. Like I just didn't want to do it. But even more so than that, I wasn't sure how I felt about doing such a big play, such a, such a gigantic play on camera if it were in front of an audience on a stage in a space that I'm comfortable with, then I would have said yes in a heartbeat. I, you stopped me from it. You couldn't have stopped me from auditioning. But this is such a different medium. I was feeling really bad and I just didn't want to be on film. And I kept saying that over and over again. So I said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Even after having been in our collective think tank talking about how it was so nice to act again. So I said, no. And somebody came to me and said, you don't really get to bitch about how things are if you aren't willing to participate in changing them. (laughs) Touche. And it was true. It was true. And I mean, it was just true. And, and I really want to be part of changing them. So I had to say yes and curse the person who said that. And she knows who she is, but like, (laughs) it's true. If we want to change things, we have to do the work or we don't get to bitch about it. And so this is part of the work I can do. And kudos to Little Fish Theater for thinking I can do it. And kudos to Brandon Locke for thinking I can do it and not giving a flying fuck that I come in the meat sack I do. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and it's a great part. And it's a great, great part. And I think that people are going to be surprised just I'm, – I'm finding it fascinating already because the, the things that we forgive – 
in a man being curmudgeon, we do not forgive in a woman. And so I think for the first time, a lot of people are going to hear exactly what Henry Higgins or Henny Higgins has to say and how just not cool, dude, you are, which we, for, which we write off. We write off with men. Oh, he's just, he's just an old dude. He's grumpy. He's, he's, he's just an old bachelor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can write that off. But we, as a society, we all have to agree we're not writing shit off anymore. And you can see it in this play. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited to do it. I'm scared, scared, scared. But that just means, I guess, that I appreciate what's at risk. But I'm, 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 it is, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. So mm-hmm. I happen to know that Pygmalion is going to be available to stream May 15th through oh. May 29th, 2021. And you can find out more and purchase tickets on littlefishtheater with an R-E dot org. How yes. can people find you online? Do you have a website or social media you want to share? No, I mean, I don't really do that kind of stuff. And I should do that kind of stuff. I don't really have anything. I have a Facebook. <laughs> if you want to come find me on Old Lady Facebook. I did recently start TikToking. So let me, I mean, I don't know if my TikToks are for everybody. But uh, if you want to find me on TikTok, you can. Let me find it. I don't like to brag, but kids, I have uh, almost 300 fans now. So uh, <laughs> it's legitimate. It's legitimate. <laughs> Hold on, I gotta find it. You can find me on TikTok at, at M-A-G-S-S-H. There you go. You want to find me? That's where you can find me. Thank you, Margaret. Shook very yeah. much for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> Be sure, everybody, that you go to littlefishtheatercompany.org to find out more about how you can watch Margaret play Henrietta Higgins in Pygmalion in May. To find out more about Infinite Jest and our ongoing monthly classic comedy readings and other offerings, visit us at www.infinitejesttheatercompany.org. You can also find us on social at ingesttheater, again with an R-E, and for all the latest on this podcast, follow the hashtag The Jest Podcast. New episodes drop the second Friday each month.